can't get enough of football? Chance, goal, superhuman, special, special goal. Incredible, just incredible. Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders, your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football from the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction! Hello and Happy New Year. Finally, we get into 2021 after the year that many, many people might wish to forget. We hope that you had a wonderful Christmas and New Year celebration and a festive season, however you celebrated or enjoyed it. We're here with Football Insiders, um, the first edition for 2021. Of course, this is the home of Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival, and we're continuing the rollout of the sessions from the 2020 Football Writers Festival, which was held at the end of November in Sydney. This one is a very fitting one for while you're lolling around um, on Christmas holidays or extended, extended holidays, and it's about what writers' festivals are about, books, and talking to authors in particular. And this session was entitled History and Heroes, an Insight into Creating Football Stories. I actually hosted this particular session. I wasn't supposed to. It was supposed to be Ian Sison, but he could not make it because of travel restrictions from Victoria at that time. And we're speaking with people who have created three very different football stories in 2020. First of all, Michael Caine, who did that great interview with Mark Viduka that was shown on ESPN. Peter Kunz, who spent the best part of a decade researching a book called Chronicles of Soccer in Australia, The Foundation Years 1859 to 1949, which was published by Fair Play Publishing in 2019. And last but not least, Texie Smith, who writes in a very different genre when it comes to football. You could argue that all football authors are somewhat different in in this country in particular. There's not a lot of them. But Texie writes football fiction. He's so far written three books about Jared Black, a young Australian plying his trade overseas. And this year we published Jared Black, Guilty Party. And next year he has another one coming up called Anna Black, This Girl Can Play. So we'll take it away. We'll go straight into the questions with Michael, Peter and Texie. And I hope it gives you some inspiration perhaps to read a book over the holidays. There's nothing like reading any sort of book to just broaden the mind and you never know what you might pick up. I want to ask each of you the same question. And um, I guess, first of all, is starting with Michael, same question, what made you do it? What made you do your documentary, your Jared Black series and your history book? Michael. Um, well, well, firstly, it was. Uh, it started off. It was going to be a documentary on Australian football, full stop, and where it is and where it's going. Um, and virtually, what I just mentioned to Foz just about where, you know, when John Aloisi scored that goal to get us through to that uh, 2006 World Cup finals, um, it's almost like we've lost our way. And I just and it's. I did uh, numerous interviews. A lot of people, even in this audience, I did the interview with, and I hadn't, it didn't even see light of day. Uh, but it was all about trying to just, just to get it out there and, and start debate. Um, and it wasn't all supposed to be doom and gloom, but it's almost like I came away of all these interviews, and it was almost like it was sad. It was like everyone's going, "Where are we at now? What's going on?" You know, even to the point where you know, where's our next, you know true centre forward that plays for the Socceroos. Where's Mark Viduka? Someone like him, where is he actually? Where is he in Melbourne? Is he in Zagreb? No one knows. He's like, you know, he's so reclusive. So I did an interview with um, with Ron Smith and Smudge, you know, 
talks to him a fair bit and I mentioned to him, I said, wow, I'd love to get somehow get Mark Vuduka involved with this. And he said, well, I can ask him. I speak to him sort of quite semi-regularly. I went, wow, would you? And um, and that's how it got brokered. And um, But when I went over there, it was so many things running through my head because, again, I knew, always knew he was going to give us a good grab on the state of Australian football, but I also had all this other stuff in my head as a journalist going, wow, the 2007 Asian Cup, the you know, Harry Kuehl, all these things, all these questions I wanted answered and everyone wanted answered. And if I went over there and just asked the basic questions for this documentary, they, I would have come back going, well, why didn't you ask this? Why didn't you ask? So I had to ask everything, but also to a point where, you know, I, I needed him to be accepting, acceptance of, of it for him to want to do it. So it was a lot of time of um, talking to him over the phone. He was in Zagreb. I'm, I live in the Hunter. I live living in Maitland late at night um and it was almost like a case he said yeah i'm happy to do it and he, he first first of all he thought it was over the phone i said no i'm going to come to zagreb and he went what you're going to come all the way here and i went yeah and he went wow you know and um so when i was over there i was only there for three days and um i never met the guy i, I i've never met him in, apart from that phone call conversation so um when i got there i had a lot of overlay to shoot and all that sort of stuff but it was the last day that I was there and the three days that I had to do the interview, but it was the day before it was like a lax day. I had nothing to do. I could have went sightseeing or whatever, but I rang him up and he was working in his cafe and I said, Mark, I just want um, to meet you. You know, I just want to have a chat with you before tomorrow, go over a few things. He said, sure, I'm going to be making some coffees. I'll, you know, I'll have a chat. And when I got there, it was 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning and I thought I was only going to be there for half an hour and I sat there at this table with Mark for six hours, just talking about everything. And what he was telling me was blowing my in mind. And I'm like, oh. and at the end of it, I said to him, Mark, if, if I ask these questions on camera tomorrow, will you say those answers? He said, if you want me to. <laughs> I said, I love you too. He said, well, if you've come all this way, then I'm gonna you know, give you a good interview. And he did, and he gave it to me in spades, Benita. He did. Anyone who is there, anyone who hasn't seen it, the documentary? Everyone in the room seen it? That's all very good. Okay, <laughs> um, we'll move Thank on. You. <laughs> Taxi. What made you do it? What made you get into the fictional football world or the football fiction world? Yeah. So, uh, I'm a I'm a player. Um, I, I was managing teams. Uh, I'm a parent of a uh, of uh, two good players. Um, I've, I'm also a referee, so uh, every Monday I'd always uh, do match reports for the games that I was I was involved in. So uh, by Monday uh, things get a little bit uh, hazy, um, <laughs> and you can use a little bit of uh, artistic license. And I'm, I'm not sure if anyone else has been in the same boat when you're when you're writing a, uh, a match report where you're the only person reporting on that match. You you can write whatever you like. Yeah. <laughs> Even the players don't don't realise what they did. They don't remember running up the wing and crossing it in. No idea. So you just make it up. Okay. So I was I was writing one of these one day, and I thought, hey, I've, I've got a few ideas in my head. Let's just keep on going. And it went on and on and on. And eventually, uh, I had I don't know fifty thousand words. That's almost a book. And uh, and from there, it was just a, a case of coming up with realistic ideas. Uh, things that happen on the field, things that I see as a referee, especially you're seeing all the dialogue on the field. You're seeing two teams that you've got, you've got no relationship other uh, other than being the referee on that day, and you pick up so much. 
So, so that was the that was the key, really, just being involved. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Peter, what made you do it? Well, I guess can people hear me? Yes. Well, I guess that <clears throat> one of the things that made me do it was being in libraries and archives just about all my career. <clears throat> I knew about some of the older books to do with Australian football history. <clears throat> Sid Grant's book on Australian soccer is one of them. Um, but really, there weren't too many more. Um, there were the Hetherington documents about the uh, games in New South Wales and so on and so forth. Um, <clears throat> but I, And we all knew about the 1880 game at Parramatta, but I thought to myself, you know, there's got to be a bit more behind this uh, than what has been written. And I started doing my research. And I think one of the reasons I started doing my research was because I myself, as somebody who played the game, had loved the game, I still do, <laughs> um, I realised even I would benefit from a knowledge of the history of the game going back into the 19th century for a couple of reasons. It's a bit like, you know, you, ne- you need to know who your grandmother was or your great-grandfather was. If you have no sort of sporting roots to, to, to your sport, then you're sort of adrift on the sea of a kind of a improbability of some sort. So that gives you a sort of a that gives you a sort of grounding in that particular sport. Also, I was also well aware that the other competing codes in Australia did not have any regard really for any of the sort of history we have. Now I don't, by that I don't mean that they should love our history. Um, I'm not asking for that. But I think it's been very much part of the canon of sport in Australia that soccer or football has no great history, has no great history, at least prior to World War II, okay? So, um, and what's this, what this has led to is people thinking that somehow the game began at a certain year and no, but it began before that. I mean, for instance, I'm sure there's young people now who think that there was probably no football before the A-League. There are people who thought there was no football before the NSL. There are people who thought there was no football before the migrants came in 49. And you could go back and back and back, maybe people who thought that there's no football till the 1920s. Well, the fact is you can go back to, um, I mean, I cite a case in Tasmania around about uh, in 1859, which is a probable match of football. Um, and as to when the first match of football was played, um, if we try and find that out, that's a fool's errand because matches have to be documented, basically. If they're not documented by a newspaper or a correspondent, it didn't happen. It's like anything else. Just as well, Texie wasn't around then. (coughs) Well. So let's move move on because we're just going to what started you doing and what made you do it. I just want to come back to Michael. Um, You know, you mentioned that you you spent six hours in the coffee shop with with Viduka. What what does he do? Does he do that every day? Were were you surprised? Um, Is he a barista? He is a barista, yeah, and he does make a good coffee because he made about eight of them for me that day. Um, but it was, it was the the most, it was the best six hours because again, especially you know, a lot of the people in here, you know, when you go into an interview, you don't know what you're going to get, and it was almost like a trial run, and it was almost like you know, a pupil sitting for a test, and he's already seen he or she's already seen the answers. So I already knew the answers. So then I was going to delve a little bit deeper in those answers because I knew that the the answers he was going to, you know, tell me were were going to be there. But it's to see how far I can go down that down that hole before I reel it back in again and start again. Um, But even in that um, that day, it was just incredible. I suppose 
you know, Zagreb is such a, a place where everyone knows everyone. And while we were there, um, a, a fellow came into the into the cafe and 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 Mark, and Mark said, "Oh, that guy, he trains Goran Ivanovic. You know, he uh, the former tennis player who you now coaches Djokovic." And I went, "Oh, wow, you know." And, um, and then another guy came in, and he was half Aussie, half Croatian. I said, "Oh." What are you doing here? And he says, "Oh well, my daughter, she's a tennis player, but I don't think their Australian, you know, tennis pathway is that good. So I've brought her to Croatia to become a better player. And there's an old tennis player who used to coach Boris Becker, um, and also the German national team the, the, to a Davis Cup win. And you know, it's like a little academy. So I've brought her over, you know, to to train with him. So Mark said, oh, "How's he? Go- how's she going?" And 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 he said, oh, she's always getting injured. And Mark goes, well, maybe, you know, maybe he's got an old technique. Maybe, he, you know, she needs a new set of eyes. Maybe, you know, his facilities are getting old. I don't know, you know. And he said, yeah, maybe. He said, well, look, that guy in that coffee shop that's just getting my wife's just serving, he knows Goran Ivanizovic. And not only does he train the Joker, but he also has a tennis academy for juniors in Zagreb. Why don't we have a chat? So next thing you know, we're all around the table talking about brokering this deal for this 16-year-old girl to get trained by, you know, Goran Ivanizovic. Next thing you know, we're FaceTiming Goran Ivanizovic at the table. <laughs> and that's how like, it's almost like he knows everyone. It was like I looked over the, to the table over there and I said, Mark, is that? Is that? And he said, yeah, that's the Croatian president. <laughs> My my kids go to school with her kids. I said, "Man, you could pull some. You got a bit of power here. You could be in politics." He goes, "Yeah, I could be actually. Yeah." So it's almost like it was. There's a story within the story, you know, that I could write about away from the actual interview itself. Just what we spoke about in those six hours. Just just for the I guess the young journalists here, and we've touched on it a couple of times today about how media is changing. Um, and that trying to get work in journalism is difficult. Were you self-financed? I had I had to do it myself, and that was the thing too. Is that um, as I, I work for Channel Ten, but I know as I mentioned before, Channel Ten hates football. Um, <laughs> the only time they'll do a story is if a flare's been thrown, <laughs> and that's the truth. And um, it. I remember doing a live cross for, for Channel 10 in front of the Sydney Football Stadium before a grand final and I've got someone in my ear, the producer, and I'm talking and all of a sudden I hear in my ear, there's been a flare thrown, can you mention it in the cross? And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I don't know whether it was thrown in anger. We all know what a flare is. It's just atmosphere, just fans walking, but they just wanted that grubby shit and I'm sick of that grubby shit and that's why I just – you know, I was fed up. But, I mean, in regards to that self-financing, I, 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 yes, I did, and I had to pay my own way, and that was the thing. It was it was unsecured. I had no one to show it. You know, I didn't go to SBS or Fox Sports or ESPN before I went, so I was going flying by the seat of my pants um, where it could have, you know, again, I had to I had to do produce the goods. I had to get a great interview for it to air somewhere, and maybe that, um, that pressure produced the good interview. I don't know. But the funny thing about it is that when I came back, and this is the sad thing about Australian football at the moment, I brought it to SBS, I brought it to Fox Sports, and not one of them wanted to even listen to it. We've got, here's the hard drive. Here it is. Listen to it. There. No. 
thank God for ESPN who stepped in, you know, because it would never have got to air. And that was the thing. For four months, I'm broke trying to get someone to show this thing. ESPN actually paid me for it. I was actually going to give it to them for nothing because it was so bloody good. I knew how powerful it was. And in a way, it was sort of like that. getting back to that documentary that, that I was going to do. It's sort of like the documentary. It still caused, well, not so much change, but it made debate, which was this whole reason I wanted to do the documentary in the first place, and I did it through Mark Viduka's vehicle. Hmm. Um, Taxi, um, where, where did you get the inspiration for Jared Black? I mean, is it just as simple as you sort of embellishing referee reports or...? Did you consciously think about we could do with some football fiction? Um, yes, yeah. We're, uh, I, I haven't seen any football fiction um, in Australia. Uh, I did meet uh, Adrian Deans last last year, who has has written some fiction, but uh, I'd never seen any. I'd, I'd never been uh, exposed to any fiction, and I, I just felt as if uh, football needed to be uh, needed to have some some positive. Um, even even though they're fictional uh, role models, so so just someone who's who's a good bloke, so someone you can relate to, someone who uh, they might be just down the park at the end of the street, and uh, you, you can relate to it. You know, you you know, he's got a family, he's got he does everyday things just just like we all do. So uh, it it was it was a case of saying, well, I'm enjoying writing this. I think people are going to enjoy reading it. If I continue doing it, embellishing this this uh, this person, the match report. <laughs> yeah, the match reports. Okay, yeah, embellished a little bit, but uh, but I can do whatever I like. It's fiction. Okay, it has, still has to be believable, but uh, the, the whole idea was just to just to have a a hero, if you like, and uh, and introduce him. Hence the first book, and then go on go on a journey with him. So so th there are endless adventures that he could go on. Yep. Let's just see what happens next. The, the the balance between in in something like this, especially because you know all of us go to matches, all of us watch matches, all of us have sort of played for one standard or another. How do you get that balance right between being believable and well, look, this is a book, this is a work of fiction, and it's my fiction, so this is what I want to happen. How do you get that balance? Um, I've got a, a a good editor, perhaps, who uh, <laughs> who points things out that I that I I, I need to change. Um, but being believable, it's 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 all believable. Um, when when uh, something happens that's newsworthy in real football, sometimes you look at that and say, "Nah, that couldn't be right." But if you wrote about it in fiction, you'd say, "Yeah, that's rubbish." Yeah. So you've you've got to get that balance right. You can't be too outlandish. Um, if it's believable with a with a, a slightly fantasy point, that's fine. Yeah. You just have to. Uh, I don't know how the balance works. It just does. You just have to have to write it. Maybe you go over it a few times and check out someone else, get someone else to read it. Um, you know, does that really happen? It's like, yeah, sure, that happens, and and it'll stay in. And so, Jared Black guilty party is interesting in that regard. With the opening, you know, those of us who may not have been around professional footballers might think it's a little bit out there. Mm -hmm. um, did you did you road test that? I mean, I guess we could read it out loud and ask Andy and. And Dave and the other professional footballers in the room, does it sound a bit familiar? And I suspect it would, so we won't. Um, but did you road test that at all? Um, to be honest, I didn't. Right. I didn't because I didn't really want to know. So, so the the beginning of the book <laughs> is at a party. So, so hence the hence the name as well. Um, so it's an end of season party. Um, things could get out of hand. Things are a little bit outlandish. Um, 
but it's an intro introduction to the rest of the book. It's a continuation of the theme. I think I, I think a lot of those things would happen in real life. Um, it, it, it's probably a little bit tempered even. But uh, yeah, it could be a little bit tame. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the I always think when I'm reading Jared Black, and I have obviously read all three books, and and Texie's fourth book is. Uh, which is is totally well, not totally different, but not about Jared Black. Chexie's fourth book will be out next year, um, but Jared Black always reminds me of somebody, um, and it's sort of a cross between Kevin Musket and Aaron Moy, if that's possible. Um, <laughs> so the love child of does. Uh, is he meant to remind us of anyone or is it just whoever we imagine him to be? Yeah, you've got to use your imagination for for Jared Black. He's he's, he's the guy that. Yeah, you might have seen someone's son who got a who got a contract to to play overseas. Um, you follow him because you know his parents, that sort of thing. Uh, he, he's that guy. So he's that guy, who, that, that boy who done good from your suburb, effectively. So it's a it, it's close to home. It's close to everyone's heart. Which is around Gladesville, isn't it? Uh, yeah, West Ride, West Ride yeah. Rovers. Yeah, Fra Francis. Francis is the next West Ride Rovers thirty uh, fives player. Yeah, go the Rovers. Yeah. <laughs> um, Peter, we'll turn to you. Um, one of the things that's really fascinating, and, and look, if there are any state federations, particularly north of Sydney, watching this, hi. Um, what's really fascinating in this book is there's a few interest, interesting aspects, but um, one of the ones I think, or two of the ones that I think are, I think everyone would be interested in hearing about, particularly those who haven't read it, is the relationship between the state federations and the role of the media. So would you like to expand on those two things? Because, you know, we they always say if we don't learn from history, we're bound to repeat the mistakes. So I'll give the floor to Peter on that one. Uh, well, in terms of relationships between the federations, <clears throat> any relationship I think tended to be adversarial. Um, if not adversarial, just simply it boiled down to the fact that, okay, well, we'll you know, New South Wales will play Queensland this on this date and you'll come back down here and play us. That's that's probably the most um, generous way I can put it. Other than that, there was always competition. Um, <clears throat> some of you may not know that prior to, correct me if I'm wrong, but but prior to Joe Vlasic being the, 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 the Socceroo coach, um, Australian teams were chosen by selectors. And when I say selectors, I mean selectors, plural. There were usually about four or five of them. Now, of course, they had to come from, say, New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, Western Australia, something like that. So they had to come from at least four or five different states. Can you imagine these so-called selectors coming, about, um, coming around a table and trying to select a national team, particularly in those days when obviously there wasn't film of people playing matches in each of their states? Um, you know, there was little broadcasting of any sort. Okay, there might have been a few newspaper reports. I mean, obviously, this was a dog's breakfast. It was an attempt to mollify all the states. <clears throat> and like anything like that, many of the Australian teams were, were compromisers. I mean, I think Ron Lord himself, uh, I think it was Ron, or somebody, uh, Ron and some of his other team members said that in reference to the 1956 Olympics. Somebody said, why, why did our team not do better in the 1956 Olympics? Well, that's because... It was a compromised team. It was a team chosen by a group of selectors representing different states. Of course, you needed to have a certain number of Victorians in because it was held in Melbourne, understandable. But, you know, you also had to have a few Queenslanders in or I don't know, I think there was, there was one Western Australian and so on and so forth. So it wasn't necessarily the, the best 
players were chosen. So that's another example. Um, but I think that there were some other interesting facts about the different states and territories. And the other thing in my book, what I really tried very hard to do <clears throat> was treat all the states and territories um, with an even hand in that um, I've given a reasonable amount of space to both the ACT and Northern Territory, albeit they're not large states or anything, but they all have a footballing history. And if we go through all the states, they all have a particular flavour. So I'll, I'll start from Queensland, for example. In Queensland, one of the things you do notice is that, of course, Queensland, they always say, is the most um, diverse state in terms of people living outside the capital of Brisbane, which is in the very south. So, again, there are many quite large clubs flourishing in Townsville and Rockhampton and so on and so forth. So even in the early days, there were many clubs spread throughout Queensland. Um, and also, although, of course, the game developed in Brisbane, a lot of the uh, strength in the game was in Ipswich after a while as well. Uh, and then if you move to New South Wales, well, New South Wales, you know, calling itself the premier state to a certain degree, it's still the premier state in terms of football in Australia. I mean, it was fortunate in having three areas that were, in terms of, in Australian terms, were, were very keen on the game. So obviously you had Sydney, but you had the Newcastle area and you had the Wollongong area. And um, in, in Sydney, the support would have come from the factory workers principally um, in Newcastle obviously it was um, to a certain degree it was the miners and the miners tended to have a little bit more time in the early days as well they walked they worked shorter hours um, and many of them were Scotsmen or perhaps Englishmen as well and they were very keen on the game so the game flourished very much in that area and in in, in um, the Wollongong area as well you had the Joadja team you know which played in the shale uh, oil mining region down there now, when people had to play Joadja, they had to go down by a flying fox, okay? So the person who controlled the flying fox went down rather quickly with, with the visiting team, and this tended to make some of them rather queasy. But, you know, it was, it was all a matter of just getting a bit of an advantage on your opposition. But I can tell you all these stories. I'll tell you what, Tex, you don't need to write fiction about football in Australia. The actual true stories about football in Australia are the most weird and ridiculous and outlandish stories that you can imagine. But anyway, um, then we move along. So you, you've got the idea of how New South Wales, if you like, becomes a powerhouse because it's got these three principal areas of where football is popular. Then we move to Victoria. Well, to be honest, Victoria always did have a big problem, okay? Australian football, Australian rules, whatever you like to call it, obviously that was the home of that sport. And it had a pretty much a vice-like grip. The game appeared around about the uh, 1890s in Melbourne in terms of, I'm not saying it's the earliest games, but in terms of a league, and then it petered out for a while. And then it got going again about 1908. But there was a crucial seven, eight years when the game was as good as dormant there, okay? And Victoria tended to play catch-up for a long, long time, especially when you consider it uh, was the second most popular state. Uh, so that's Victoria. Then you move on to South Australia. Look, to be honest, in terms of South Australia, there's not that much that I can say that is peculiar, um, maybe except for the fact that in general terms there were probably less um, less animosity between the, between the clubs and the actual people within the association. It was a bit more of a tranquil environment. So actually that's a... That's a good mark for the South Australians. 
Um, compared to some of the other states, they had less ructions. Um, Tasmania was quite vigorous for its size. It obviously had the two competitions, one up the north, centred around Launceston. Um, you had the you had the woolen mills up there was a uh, consistently popular team, and then you had the competition in uh, in, a, in 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 Hobart, and um, um, I think it's correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's a South Hobart team or something that's one of the oldest. Yeah, extent. South Hobart's been around since 1910 and it would be wrong not to mention yeah, that Vicky Morton is the president of South Hobart. So we might just move on from that, yes. Peter, because we, we can't go around everywhere in right. Australia. But, yeah, South, the president of South Hobart is here and that, that's a club that's been around since 1910. And, you know, the, the, if, if you look at the back of this book, it lists all those clubs during that period and when they began. And, you know, for instance, Wynnum Wolves in Brisbane, a club that probably most people in this room haven't heard of, it has its centennial next year and we don't think of an ordinary suburban club in Brisbane um, having been around for a hundred years but it has and so that gets back again to that point about culture and history and how important it is in our game and I'd really commend even if you don't read, want to read the rest of the book the the annex with all the list of, of clubs is is a terrific read. Can I just quickly um, say with the list of clubs it's, it's it was something I did as a sort of an annex to the book I then became a little obsessed about it um I have to admit I'm a stamp creature. It was, it was like finding a new stamp every time I identified a new club. Uh, but really I got to, I got, I got to over a thousand clubs. Now when you consider, I'm talking about only up to 1949, and yet people who advance the other codes, they have the temerity to tell us that our code has no history, or if it has a history, it's a, it's a very spotty history and it's hardly worth any sort of consideration. I mean, I think, I think a list like that puts that lie to bed. Um, my, <clears throat> Michael, if I seem to recall that when you were in that coffee shop with Mark Paduka, someone in particular walked in, or am I getting that confused with another story you've told me? <laughs> you're talking about. <laughs> oh, it's all right. Um, I'll, I'll, um, you're, you follow Liverpool, Newcastle Jets and Adamstown Rosebuds. Yeah. Um, it's a shame John Maynard is not here because he's a mad Adamstown Rosebuds fan as well. What was it? Did you talk to Mark Baduca about that game against Liverpool? Um, well, it's funny. He, um, I think that's the thing. He, so many people come up to him. That's the first thing that they actually ask him about. So I think he's talked about it to death. And it was actually, he said <clears> to me, it's actually the biggest. I find more of an interesting story was what happened around that 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 time, and I went, "Oh, well, do tell." Um, and apparently, um, because they were playing Liverpool, they were playing at home, but for some reason they were playing bad. So the the manager O'Leary put them in a motel in like a camp leading up to the game, um, and he said it was at the same time. Um, it was the night before. It was cracker night in England. So all these fireworks were going off and um, what was happening, he was you know, getting phone call after phone call from his wife, who's Croatian, and it was giving her flashbacks of the, the civil war in Croatia. And, um, and she was crying and emotional and he, he goes, she must have rang me 30 times. I, I didn't get a wink of sleep before that game. I went, wow, imagine how good you would have played if you did. But 
it just shows. Mm. I, I suppose it, it just shows mental toughness in a in a footballer. Where again, I've never been in that. You know, in that uh, in that position, I wish I wish I did. But it shows that the mental strength that they they have that they put adversity 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 to the side to to get the job done and to score four goals against Liverpool, to score one goal against Liverpool. You know, you'd be happy. You know, but four on the one day. Um, and I think, yeah, he 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 talks about it, but probably not as much because again, I think that's he doesn't want to be remembered for that. You know, because of, uh, he talks about when he played for the Socceroos and he said, Michael, I, I copped a bit of stick because I didn't score enough goals for the Socceroos. He said, but I was told to hold the ball up front. He said, half the time I had my ass to the goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. You know, to score goals, I have to be looking the other way. I was just doing a job. So maybe I would have scored more goals if I, they put me in more of a spearhead position and not probably because of my size, I, you know, I was sort of lumbered with the task of holding the ball up and letting Harry and and Co running off me, and so I just did a job. And um, another interesting part about it too is that he's a very shy man. He always has been, and, but I, asked, you know, just the fact that he was made the Socceroo captain, and it was sort of out of his comfort zone where he had to, you know, even doing team speeches. You know, it was really hard for him to to do that sort of stuff because he just likes sitting in the corner doing nothing. And sleeping, um, he's like his words. He just loves sleeping, playing soccer and sleeping. That was, you know, <laughs> what he loved doing. But but he had to to take on this this massive responsibility in in two thousand and six and be the captain. He was. Ne- he said, "I'm never going to knock that back." When when I was asked, when you know, I was never going to knock it back. And he goes, oh, it, it, like looking back now, it was really out of my comfort zone. And he goes, "I'm glad I did it." And it was a special time for him and a time, a special time for everyone, um, everyone in this room. Um, and I think that I suppose his legacy, you know, is, is sadly missed now because, again, we haven't got another Mark Viduka. Where is the next Mark Viduka? Um, you know, Ron Smith, you know, speaks about so highly of him. He's in the top three um, of his players that went through the AIS. And um, he said to me, he said, I, I took him over to um, to Argentina once and, we're playing this team, and and these te- this Argentine Argentine team were just like hulks, and Marks like had three blokes hanging off him, and in one one movement the ball came to him. He chested it, turned and volleyed it into the top corner. Even the even the Argentine bench clapped. He said he was only fifteen, you know, and you know those sort of moments. You know, he goes, I knew there was something special about Mark Viduka. Um, and it's hopefully another one's in the making, but you know I'm I'm not sort of holding my breath. I wish that I wish that was the case. Yeah, well, that's a whole other. Oh, I'm sure that's a question if people can ask James Johnson tomorrow. Um, the the um, was there a moment in that interview when you thought, wow, that's the headline out of this? I think there was about five. It was like. Just kept coming. At the end of it, he said, "Did I give you enough scoops?" I said, "I thought I was in an ice cream parlor." Uh, I just it was one after the other. I mean, I think I think the 2007 Asian Cup because it's almost like what happened in that dressing room. It's almost people know what happened, but it's never been out there. It was the fact that he actually said what happened, um, and I I don't think he hasn't he has no, no regrets in regards to what um, what he said. I know he wasn't happy with one of the things in regards to talking to Manchester United because, and this is how loyal he is, is that 
you're pondering it after it, he's actually felt disappointed. He felt like he let Leeds United down and the fans in that interview because he did it behind their back, which is what usually most players do with other clubs. But he felt really terrible, the fact that that got out of the bag and, and how he would be thought of at, at Leeds, at, at Elland Road, because he was contemplating leaving that club and doing it sneakily, you know. Um, but other than that, I mean, all those, you know, his relationship with Harry Kuehl, the fact that, you know, this is a guy that, you know, they didn't speak for so many years due to Bernie Mandich, you know, the manager that sort of drew a, you know, punched a wedge in, in between them. Um, and it wasn't until later down the track they met and sort of, put two and two together and said, well, it was Bernie, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. So, you know, there's four or five years of, of friendship that was gone because of someone else. But to, to actually turn up every day and play, I mean, we, we've all got people in workplace that we hate, but you just have to do the job. I suppose it's the same type of thing. Um, well, I, I used to anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, Taxi, your next book is um, Anna Black. This girl can play, and we're just showing you the cover of it. It'll be out next year. Um, but does that mean Jared Black's retired? Jared Black is uh, having a bit of time off, mm -hmm. but uh, he will definitely be back. Right. Yeah, and uh, the name coaching Australia, perhaps. You'll have to wait and see. Um, <laughs> now, uh, Anna Black. Obviously, there might be a relationship there between the two. Um, if you've read the first two books, you might you, you might understand that. Um, but uh, yes, that, that's coming soon, and uh, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's a, a bit of a a side project, let's say. It's still the, the same genre. It's it's still the same uh, same fiction, same style. Um, but it's a it, it's a romp. It's a, it's it's a feel good story. It, uh, it the timing is uh, you know kind of impeccable, let's say. Um, along the way, I've got the got the three books here. That when you read them, you, you don't really know when they're set. There's a, there's no actual uh, reference to say that this is in you know 2015 or, or whatever. Um, the Anna Black uh, Anna Black was uh, was conceived before the World Cup was announced in uh, Australia and New Zealand. Um, now that it has been announced, I guess by default, it's it's going to be about the the, the World Cup 2023. Yeah. Yeah. But previously, it was about a World Cup that had been won by Australia. So. Uh, we shall see. Get excited. <laughs> um, can we open it up to questions? Has anyone got any questions on any of these three about heroes and history, how to create football stories? Yeah, uh, if you can be heard, Philip, otherwise right. it's, you can, it's very hard for others to hear you, especially down that end of the room. Which the regards, microphone sorry. would be useful. Yeah. Which regards, <laughs> okay. With regard to that refusal from Fox and SBS to take the Viduka interview, were you given a reason? That's all. I sat down with Ken Ship, the boss of SBS Sport. Um, he said he was more interested in getting the Tour de France ready. Um, it's no disrespect for SBS. They've done so, so much for the game. God, you know, there's, there's no, yeah. You know, but it was just, I was pleading with him and Catherine Whelan, the, the, the boss of sport, and I'm saying, you guys have got to show this. This is like so far down the SBS alley, it's not funny. This is you guys. I'm giving it to you. What is wrong with you? Um, 
there's a markable, a remark, you know, a, a markable shift towards uh, basketball at SBS because, as I mentioned before, you know, basketball's hot, football's not, um, and I, and that's the worry. I think you know, going into a different genre, and I don't want to go down that path. Is regards to you know what looks sexy. You know, it's almost like it's entertainment now. It's it's more than just sport, and at the moment, you know, people you know like seeing quick big bash stuff, you know, like the, you know, like the cricket. Um, it's almost like we have to reinvent it, but why should we reinvent it? It's the, you know, it's, it's our game. We shouldn't have to reinvent it because of the others. Um, so I think that had a lot to do with it. Fox Sports, well, I mean, at the, at the time they were, you know, really, they're just fighting for their lives, really. Um, that's football department. So I, I and it's always, almost a case of two. It's like if I bring something to the table, their bosses would look at them and go, well, why didn't we get one of our blokes to go to Croatia and do this? Why did we get well, – who's this guy? Makes them look bad. And it wasn't about trying to make them look bad, but it's a, it's, it's a case of everything. It's almost like every walk of life, every every job, you know, if someone comes from the outside, it's easy, it's, it's more easier to push them away because it makes them – the people that are already there looking like they're not doing their job or not doing enough, and, you know, it's easier just to say no. And I think that was a, that was a big – a big thing. It was disappointing, but you know, again, you know, those both both those you know, Fox and SBS have done so much for for football. I'm, I'm not going to bag them, but it was just it was just disappointing, you know. Hmm. Are there any other questions, Greg? This is this is not so much a question, but a reference to something Peter made. Uh, Peter spoke about the ignorance about history in the game. Uh, Three months ago, I took a trip out to uh, what is what was known as the St Joseph Banks Pleasure Grounds, which are at Botany. Now, this was uh, right beside a huge old hotel called the St Joseph Banks Hotel, and it's still there, but it's been turned into uh, apartments and townhouses, etc. Big space of ground in between Foreshore Drive and the housing. You know, we're out near the, the Port Botany uh, container terminal. Lots of lots of ground, big running track, circular, well not circular, elliptical, where they hold the, the Botany Bay Gift, which is a sprint race which goes back well over 100 years. There's a plaque at this ground which references a trial match, the very first representative game in rugby league between the possibles and the probables for a South Sydney rugby league team. This same ground... 17 years prior to this first representative rugby league ground hosted the very first New South Wales-Queensland interstate football match. No mention. It was all about rugby league. And this is something that was put together by the corporates in the, in the region and Botany Council. We don't tell our story well enough. Thanks, Peter. Greg, I mean, it's okay. It's worth just commenting on something there because in the room here, there's Simon Hill, myself, Trevor Thompson, uh, Peter, and I think that's all. But we were all on what was announced as a history committee of FFA, and everybody thought this sounded fantastic. Um, and we met, I think, about four times. We had done a lot of work. Um, there had been a website. Um, set up and paid for, but not by FFA. Um, there had been a lot of work put into it. Oh, Andrew was also on that committee. Um, uh, a lot of work put into compiling a list of the key historic events of the Socceroos and the Matildas. 
over the past 100 years. Um, there was work done on a brand for a heritage brand, which would have been about going to local councils and saying, did you know that um, Joe Marsden lived here or did you know that Reg Date played his first game here or did you know that Trixie Tag, who was the first woman coach of the Matildas, lived in this house? So we could have heritage parks and it would help engage, engage with things with local communities and local government and local councils. I have to say Remo did a great job chairing that. Everybody on that committee was fantastic and please anyone else on that committee who thinks that I, I'm, I'm wrong here with this assessment, please say so. Um, but then we were all called to a or we were called to a teleconference. We were even going to have a launch of this heritage brand in, in June in Ipswich. Now, of course, COVID got in the way of that. But um, then there was a teleconference which basically said FFA wanted to take it back in-house. Full stop. And that's the last we ever heard of it. The website we've now unpublished, um, the material that Trevor and Andrew put together, uh, we've, uh, we've still got it, but no one's seeing it. Um, and that gets back to the issue that Foz was saying about the culture of our game. And that's why Remo is, feels very strongly about culture. Um, you know, you can be a lone FFA board member, but it doesn't mean that you actually have the effectiveness that you want to have unless every other board member and every other person that makes decisions in the organisation is, is behind you. But I think that was a great lost opportunity for the game. Are there any other questions? Yeah, Mark? I'm not a journal, I'm just a punter, <laughs> a fan. Um, Mark Bowman's my name. Today we've heard from a very evangelical past captain. Um, interestingly, we've got at least three former captains that are uh, very much recluse. Uh, one you recluse more by geography, perhaps, but 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 you wore him down. Um, I, to what degree do the journalists and the historians here think? And, and it's probably unfair to expect players that, that, that great players that they have some kind of responsibility to the game. But to what degree? And it's easy to dump it on the on the administrators to say they haven't looked after them. But I'm just curious about how we, in terms of living culture, not just plaques, but living culture, we've got this living culture out there that 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 is really underutilised in in promoting this wonderful game. And I'm just. Just wanted to get a sense from the panel or journalists about how we can do better about that. Well, I mean, for for example, I mean, I think you might know that there's a series on ABC TV on sporting history heroes. One of them was Peter Brock. Uh, another's been Wayne Gardner, the motorcycle racer. And I think there was another one on the first Aboriginal cricket team. Now, all very well, nothing wrong with that at all. But I thought to myself, geez, wouldn't... Now, there'd be another story, maybe there'd be two stories that would be hell of a stories for that series. One of them would be the 67 trip to Vietnam by the Australians. I mean, what, what an incredible story that is. It's like if, if, even if you don't like football, it's a, it's a boy's own adventure. I mean, people basically almost dodging bullets to play the game. I mean, you'd, you'd think that that would be a fitting subject for that series. And then I, th I thought the other one might simply be the first, you know, 1974 World Cup team playing in Germany. But this is where we're missing in action. We're missing in action. Greg, we're not just missing in action when it comes to plaques 
commemorating the game 50 years ago, 100 years ago. On Friday there was an article, and there had been articles for months and months and months about the renovation of football fields in Sydney. I say football fields, but basically if you read any article, particularly in the Telegraph, it's rugby league, rugby league, oh, Cogra has to get redeveloped, rugby league, rugby league, rugby league, rugby league. Now where is, where is a person representing football getting in the ear of Gladys or indeed anybody else responsible for the renovation of those grounds? I mean, if they are, they're invisible. I have not heard of them and I'm sure nobody else here has heard of them because probably they don't exist. This is where the powers that be have to be on the ball and they have to be on the ball, pardon the pun, they have to be on the ball every day of the year. Can you imagine particularly the AFL uh, missing an opportunity to publicise its game in China or Siberia or Alaska or somewhere, regardless of how foolish that might be, they're not doing it. They're, they are literally going to the ends of the earth um, to publicise their sport. Now, that may or may not be productive. I've got my own views on that. But uh, you've got to give them some credit. They're giving it a bloody go. I mean, we, we need to be making the critical interventions in, in public fora where we need to be seen and heard. I mean, if we're not seen and we're not heard, how can, how can we be surprised if the mass of the Australian population think that we're just a bunch of wallflowers who are, um, you know, some sort of 10th-rate um, players on the Australian sporting landscape? You know, I'm sorry, but we we also have to be critical of ourselves and I think we have to develop some confidence. I, I think there is a, if you look through the history of the sport and the way we have been treated by other sports in this country, um, it's been a very difficult road, uh, road to hoe. There's no doubt about it. But let's be clear on this. The other sports are not our friends. They're not our, you know, there are times they have um, collaborated with us, but usually it's to their greater benefit. If it's not to their greater benefit, we are shunned. Um, where, you know, sissy soccer players or whatever, we, we know all the terms that have been used over the, over the decades. So let's not be stupid about this. We, we are in a competition with those people and those people are very happy to deny us the oxygen of publicity and, and they're this, doing a very good job of it. And this actually segues <coughs> nicely. <clears throat> this actually segues nicely in some ways into the next session which is about the legacy arising from 2023 because uh, those of us who are old enough to remember the 2000 Olympics um, and uh, it was our good friend Mike Cockrell's 60th birthday yesterday if he'd been with us and those of you who recall what Mike had to write over the years about the legacy or non-legacy of the 2000 Olympics will recall that what he said about that and then you think back to the 2015 Asian Cup and even what the legacy is. This is another opportunity for the game in 2023 So, and this is what the next session's all about. So I'm going to close up this session. We can all have a bit of a stretch of legs because we've got a, a long one coming up. But before doing so, I just want to... Um, go through uh, some of the books that we're publishing next year because it's been a slow year this year. Um, uh, quite a few our, our, of our authors <clears> were uh, didn't meet their deadlines. Um, some did. Um, but some the just to take you through the front covers of some of the books, um, 
I'm delighted. It's not an Australian book. It's not one of our publications, but we are the exclusive Australian distributor of Totti's biography in English. Um, and I've read what he said about that, that incident in 2006, and that alone is worth having a read of. We've talked about Anna Black, This Girl Can Play. It's a fiction, um, and that's really, really topical. And I'm sure actually Tom and Stadge would find that quite interesting, having coached the Matildas, both of them. Um, Be My Guest is another one um, from Jason Goldsmith and Lucas Gillard. Um, and it touches on some of the issues that Andrew Howe was talking about, some of the world football superstars who have played in Australia. Uh, and, of course, Alan Best um, is... Is uh, George Best? Sorry, George Best is the um, is on the front cover, and it's a shame that Vicky's husband Ken Morton couldn't be here because Ken Morton and George Best have been mates since they were about fifteen or something. Um, and jo George actually visited Ken when he came to Australia. The next one is Portraits in Football. There's a huge story backstory to this one, and I'll I'll terribly much enjoy telling it. Um, unfortunately, you can't quite see that there, but uh, that features Joe Marsden on the front cover. It is a pictorial history of Australian football photos from 1915 to 1990, um, and it's worth it for the backstory alone. And hi, people in MacArthur. Um, and last but not least, there is Riding Shotgun from the autobiography of the original uh, Wizard of Oz, who just happens to be with us, Andy Bernal. This is an absolutely fabulous read. Um, it's very rare to have a player writing his own story. Uh, I can say that it is heartfelt, it is honest, it is raw, um, and you'll, just as you see the cover and everything that's in that wonderful face, um, that's what's also in the wonderful book. Um, we also have a couple of others whose covers we don't have yet, such as Pioneers of Women's Football and also The Code Wars, which is a very interesting juxtaposition to the discussion we've had. So I just wanted to, uh, to preview some of those. Um, I also just want to emphasise again that the discussion today, I mean, when we were talking about the festival and putting this particular session together, someone said to me, oh, you can't have those together because they don't go together. But actually they do because it's all about culture. History is culture, fiction is about culture, and you go back to what Foz was saying about we need to be getting our story into every aspect of our lives. Um, fiction's very important to that. And, of course, our heroes uh, are important, and our heroines, I have to say, are important to us. So um, this session was about football culture and, in a sense, that Football Writers' Festival is about um, developing and building and, and, and massaging our football culture and making it get bigger and bigger. Thank you all for your attention. Thank you, Michael, Texi and Peter for your work and for being part of the panel. So that was that for History and Heroes, an insight into creating football stories at the Football Writers Festival. At this year's festival, I can say this year now, seeing as it's 2021, we'll be hearing even more from authors of football books because there's more books coming out, which is terrific. It's part of building the culture of the game. So without any further ado, we'll leave you to your summer holidays and be back next week with the final session from the 2020 Football Writers Festival. Until then, stay safe and have a great January. Thanks for listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fair Play Publishing, home of the Football Writers Festival. Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au.